Welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School with Michael Benner. Hello, and welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. I'm your host, Michael Benner. In this episode, we continue the reading of our audiobook, Fearless Intelligence, The Extraordinary Wisdom of Awareness. This is Chapter 1. To receive notification of our upcoming podcast, be sure to enroll in our free email newsletter at michaelbenner.com. That's the W's dot my name, Michael, A-E-L-M-I-C-H-A-E-L, Benner, be like boy, E-N-N-E-R, michaelbenner.com. Chapter 1. Who am I? We are smarter than we think, intelligent in ways our logical minds cannot comprehend. During the summer between my junior and senior years at Michigan State University, I had a one-week vacation from my radio news job at WILS AM and FM in Lansing. I'd been planning a camping trip for months, carefully choosing which lakes I'd fish and the campgrounds where I'd pitch my tent each night. As the date approached, I purchased or borrowed everything I'd need. Sleeping bag, tent, camp stove, water jugs, a large cooler, flashlight, and assorted fishing gear. I even had a small aluminum john boat that was light enough to hoist onto my car's roof rack without any help. Soon after my pre-dawn departure, a radiant sunny morning unfolded before me as I rolled into the dense pine woodlands of northern Michigan. I lowered the car windows to enhance the fresh, resinous fragrance of the forest. The narrow two-lane highway drew me deeper and deeper into the same timberlands my great-grandfather and his oxen, Pat and Mike, had logged after the Civil War. Hiking, camping, and fishing across Michigan's lower peninsula was a big part of my heritage, and I felt fortunate to be speeding along in a car rather than walking or riding in an ox cart. I was at least 25 or 30 miles from the nearest town when I heard a pop, then a hissing sound, followed by three or four loud engine knocks. Swerving to the side of the road, I nervously raised the hood. The top radiator hose hissed and spit at me like a hostile cobra. Annoyed at myself, my first thoughts were defensive. Everyone carries a spare tire. Why don't we all carry spare radiator hoses, too, I demanded of myself. I got no satisfaction from my instinctive effort to avoid self-blame. Yet my ego persisted, insisting, hey, this could have happened to anyone. A true but irrelevant statement. I was stranded and unable to recall when I had last seen another car along this secluded country lane. There were no phone boxes in the woods and no cell phones in those days. The forest crowded in on me. Silence reigned but for a gentle breeze skimming across the tops of the tallest pines. Somehow, the sunny day seemed not so bright or cheery. My legs felt slightly weak and wobbly, so I sat sideways in the front seat with my door open and my feet on the ground. My mind rushed through its own agenda. There's no one else out here, it warned. 
It could be hours before anyone drives by. This is serious. You may have to sleep in the car tonight. Only then did I remember there was a tent in my car, followed by an instantaneous revelation. Fireworks lit up the inside of my skull as I remembered why I was here, to go camping. Everything I needed to survive was packed into my car. I could set up my tent beside the road, break out my camp stove, make hot coffee, and cook a warm meal. Anytime, anywhere, what was I worried about? I was surprised to hear myself laugh out loud as I assured myself this is not a problem. The sun shone more brightly and the birds sang again as I realized I had arrived at the first campsite of my vacation. Somewhat stunned by the revelation, I hadn't even begun to unpack when I heard the faint but distinctive sound of a car on the highway. Looking up and down the road, I squinted to find the car heading my way. As it came closer, I realized it was actually a truck. Wait, it was a tow truck. I had turned 21 just six months earlier, but my real coming of age transpired on that rural Michigan highway. Only a small part of reality is done to us. Most of our experience is determined by how we perceive and respond to circumstances, events, and relationships, especially when they appear to be beyond our control. The 14th century German mystic Johannes Toller wrote, If I were a king and did not know it, I would not be a king. Like my roadside dilemma, the core of our problems does not exist in the external world. Our difficulties lie primarily as internal distortions generated, shaped, and sustained by a lack of self-awareness. Anxiety, frustration, and despair further degrade awareness and understanding. The mind is an allusion to self-awareness. It is more than the brain because the body plays an integral role in everything the mind does. Both emotional and physical feelings are experienced throughout the body. Without awareness, existence is meaningless, for nothing could be felt, seen, or heard. The question that took up residence within me that day was, how can I inhabit each moment, expanding my awareness of the perceptions that pass through my mind? While camping and fishing in the forests of northern Michigan, I began to pursue the extraordinary wisdom of awareness, the invisible essence of being. In the half century since then, my quest has taken me through philosophy, comparative religion, mysticism, psychology, anthropology, and countless personal development programs. In addition to various exercises, at the end of each chapter, this book concludes with a series of practical tools and techniques you can practice for the rest of your life. Skills for understanding, solving problems, and living happily ever after. Growing up. I was four or five years old when my parents purchased their first television set. Suddenly, graphic news of world events poured into our living room. 
the cruelty and injustice of war, racism, and poverty became evident to me by my early teens. As the first TV generation, baby boomers were idealistic, but also smart enough to see the futility of trying to change the world through political reform alone. Many of us recognized the need to transform the views of the newsmakers and media commentators or become them. By my 22nd birthday, I'd earned my bachelor's degree in broadcasting and journalism. I also knew I needed to better understand myself before I could inform and influence others. My education had taught me many things about the world, but almost nothing about myself. I replaced my naive desire for a problem-free life with an aspiration to become a better problem-solver. My subsequent search for a common thread running through my difficulties led directly to my fear and obliviousness. In time, I realized I was undiscovered, undeveloped, and lacking self-awareness. Finally free from schoolwork, I immersed myself in the fledgling human potential movement of the 1970s. As my awareness grew, my need to be right was replaced by a realization that all ideas, beliefs, and opinions have relative degrees of merit. I learned the benefits of acknowledging other points of view, even when I strongly disagreed. I also recognize the greatest of all fears is not death, pain, or danger, but rather whom we may be. Those with the courage to explore their individuality eventually recognize the glorious and incomparable uniqueness of every single thing. In a universe that refuses to replicate snowflakes, flowers, or grains of sand, each one of us embodies diversity and harmony, an expanded awareness called peace and love that redeems fear and ignorance. The Counterculture Search for Self-Awareness In the 1960s, the emotional sensitivity and heightened awareness resulting from the popular use of marijuana, LSD, and other mind-expanding psychedelics, led beatniks and bohemian hippies to refer to themselves as heads, freaks, and flower children. Informed by the lyrics of popular songs, alternative newspapers, and counterculture books, baby boomers began searching for each other to commiserate, organize against the war in Vietnam, and build support for civil rights, feminism, and environmental protection. Gradually, the quest for higher consciousness, peace, and love shifted from psychedelic drugs to mysticism. The year 1967 was a significant turning point, often called the Summer of Love. In January of 67, no less than 25,000 people gathered in San Francisco's Golden Gate Park for the first human be-in. The event was organized to rally opposition to a new California law banning possession and use of LSD. Featured speakers included the high priests of LSD, Dr. Timothy Leary and Dr. Richard Alpert, beat poets Allen Ginsberg, Gary Snyder, and Lawrence Ferlinghetti, 
plus live music by the Grateful Dead, Jefferson Airplane, Janis Joplin, and Quicksilver Messenger Service. Several months later, Firesign Theater comedian Peter Bergman used his Radio Free Oz program on KPFK-FM to promote the first love-in at Elysian Park in Los Angeles. Countless love-ins followed from coast to coast, offering one-day sanctuaries for psychedelic rock music, dancing, meditation, and copious drug use. Intending to elevate rock and roll and blues from a trendy fad to an established musical genre, an unprecedented three-day pop music festival was held in June of 1967 at the site of the annual Monterey Jazz Festival. By later that summer, an estimated 100,000 flower children had spontaneously migrated to San Francisco's Haight-Ashbury neighborhood, to participate in the counterculture's Summer of Love. Soon after the June release of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, the Beatles announced their affiliation with the Indian guru Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, founder of Transcendental Meditation. The eminent Harvard psychologist and LSD researcher Dr. Richard Alpert traveled to India seeking enlightenment and returned as a guru named Baba Ram Das. Also in 1967, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. nominated a Vietnamese Zen Buddhist monk, Thich Nhat Hanh, for the Nobel Peace Prize, and His Holiness the Dalai Lama made his first trip abroad since his exile from Tibet to India in 1959. My fascination with mysticism altered states, meditation, and self-hypnosis began in the early 1960s when I saw a stage hypnotist induce trance states on the TV variety show Art Linkletter's House Party. As a young teen, I ordered my first book about hypnosis with a coupon clipped from the back of a comic book. My college experience with LSD revealed the vibrancy and vitality of divinity in everything, everywhere. I clearly experienced myself as part of a universal collective, but the orthodox monotheistic view of God as an invisible hominoid living far above the clouds now seemed nonsensical. Instead, the psychedelic consensus that love is everywhere made the monism of Eastern philosophy reasonable and appealing to much of my generation. Soon, an interest in meditation and mindfulness was flourishing among baby boomers. I was also impressed in my college years with the biography of transmedium Edgar Casey, There is a River by Thomas Sagru. During the early 1970s, I read Seth Speaks, a trans-channeled manuscript by Jane Roberts, Self-Hypnotism by Leslie LeCrone, and the classic As a Man Thinketh by James Allen, the variety of religious experience by William James, and the science of mind by Ernest Holmes. In 1974, a 40-hour self-hypnosis training called Silva Mind Control provided me with a variety of practical tools for improved concentration, stress reduction, memory, problem-solving, pain management, and accelerated healing. 
By 1981, I was teaching meditation, guided imagery, and self-hypnosis at Live and Learn, a nonprofit personal development center in Sherman Oaks, California, run by accelerated learning pioneer Stephen Snyder. My workshops were called Integrated Thinking, though we were actually teaching students to blend and balance and enhance emotional awareness with their logical and intuitive thoughts. The workshop was expanded in 1984 and renamed Integrated Living, a 12-hour seminar offered at both the Los Angeles and Long Beach Convention Centers. Our slogan was Check It Out, Feel It Out, Act It Out. Inspired by Napoleon Hill's renowned triplet, if you can conceive it and believe it, you can achieve it. Working as a radio journalist and talk show host at ABC Radio in Los Angeles, I was confident and successful, but still somehow incomplete. As I approached my mid-thirties, I began to realize how the urge to know myself better was more emotional than mental. I knew how to think about my emotions, but I had no idea how to understand their significance. I met Joel Isaacs, a Santa Monica-based Reikian therapist, at a Live and Learn seminar. Joel was non-threatening, knowledgeable, and experienced, so I scheduled an intake session, hoping he could aid my shift from mostly cerebral to an expanded emotional awareness. In our second meeting, Joel asked, Are you willing to walk on the edge of your feelings? I wasn't sure what he meant, but I was eager to try anything that would help me sort things out. In my brain, Mick Jagger's petulant lyric, I can't get no satisfaction because I try and I try and I try and I try, played over and over like the soundtrack of my life. During our next few sessions, I began to feel the full range of emotions in my body and understand them intuitively. I was amazed to find expanded awareness, intelligence, and insight hidden inside my emotional hurt and heartache. Of course, I had always known that big, overwhelming emotions, anger, sadness, and excitement, too, affected me physically, and emotions were called feelings, after all. Slowly, it dawned on me just how similar the intimations of my emotions were to my physical feelings. Like physical pain, heartache, and confusion are symptoms that need awareness and understanding, not repression. Early on, Joel and I found deeply buried despair, the kind of fear and alienation that children suffer. More than once in our sessions, I wept uncontrollably. Never before had I allowed myself to release such all-consuming anguish. Oddly, Joel had to teach me how to cry. He insisted I breathe deeply, look directly into his eyes, and let go. The dam broke. Tears drained my reservoir of accumulated misery. I sobbed like an infant without reservation. Clearly something was leaving my body. The relief was palpable. I was deeply moved one day when Joel hugged me during a crying jag, blown away by how safe it made me feel. I realized 
I had no memory of my father ever embracing me when I cried or was frightened. Instead, he would amplify my heartache and fear with threats and shouts of, Shut up! Shut up! Stop crying now, or I'll give you something to cry about. Yes, this was very different. At one point, an explosion of self-awareness shook me into realizing I really had been a good kid. I was not a bad little boy, much less rotten, as I'd been told repeatedly. It was as if a 12-year-old inside of me suddenly burst out of a prison shouting, I didn't do anything wrong. It wasn't my fault. I'm not bad. And in that instant, I had forgiven myself. Releasing my old pent-up fear and desolation soon allowed me to feel new peak levels of happiness and contentment, often for no apparent reason. The psychological stress and physical tension I'd carried was no longer inhibiting my inborn joy and love. The spontaneous, unbounded delight seen in very young children began to flow through me. I felt warm, vibrant, and complete. I realized the experience of being alive had more to do with emotional feelings than mental thoughts. It was a wonderful, joyous insight. The romantic poet Lord Byron wrote, All who joy would win must share it. Happiness was born a twin. In that sense, I felt compelled to use my career as a radio talk show host to broadcast my thrilling news. Without psychoanalysis, without a need to comprehend my parents' behavior, without slicing and dicing my childhood and adolescence into tiny pieces, I was free. With Joel's guidance and belief in our innate human wisdom, I discovered the keys to my self-imposed prison of fear and ignorance. It was the early 1980s, and my radio talk shows were broadcast across Southern California on KABC AM and KLOS FM, sister stations owned and operated by the American Broadcasting Company. A Hollywood cowboy and ex-governor of California, Ronald Reagan, had just moved into the White House, and his daughter, Maureen, and son, Michael, were soon hosting talk radio programs on KABC AM. Secret Service men in black roamed the hallways whenever the Reagan kids celebrated their father's party line over the airwaves. A new uber-conservatism was flourishing. Big government and big unions were the problem, and somehow big corporations were the solution. Trickle-down voodoo economics turned reality upside down. Fast and loose talk of winning a nuclear war with highly accurate first-strike ICBMs and an anti-ballistic missile system dubbed Star Wars had angered the Soviets, terrified our European allies, and numbed America's silent majority into a mass stupor. TV and radio talk shows quickly degenerated into echo chambers, affirming only what the conservative hosts and their cherry-picked guests proffered about issues and events. Meaningful discussions were abolished as nuance was replaced by all-or-nothing rhetoric. Like other industries, the consolidation of ownership continued so that 
As of this book's publication in 2018, only six corporations now own more than 90% of all outlets. And print media, newspapers, magazines, and book publishers, are struggling to avoid extinction. In the last decade, leisure time spent reading has fallen by 22%. I saw a need for diversity and a demand for a more comprehensive discussion of current events and issues. Referring to my talk show as Open Conversation, I targeted why my radio guests and callers held this or that belief. Although I worked at ABC Radio's two flagship stations in L.A. for over a decade, callers were repeatedly caught off guard by questions about why they thought, felt, or behaved as they did. Everyone has opinions, but few people understand why. It was fascinating. Listeners loved the sudden exposure of emotionally naked callers casting about and awkwardly stammering to explain the feelings, beliefs, attitudes, and motives behind their rigid opinions. For the most part, I was sympathetic and supportive, pointing out the benefits of becoming more self-aware through relaxation, contemplation, and meditation. But it was a show, so I didn't hesitate to eviscerate bigots, reactionaries, and simply nasty or hostile callers, anyone who promoted fear and ignorance to my audience. As popular as my programs became, corporate executives never understood how to sell it to advertisers. Yet it created demand for me as a public speaker and seminar leader. By the late 80s, I had replaced my career as a broadcast journalist and talk show host with personal development services, private training, counseling, and coaching from an educational rather than a psychotherapeutic point of view. My emphasis centered on the use of guided imagery in deeply relaxed alpha brainwave states to develop concentration, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and peak performance skills. With experience and maturity, I discovered the benefits of Vipassana, mindfulness meditation, for developing self-awareness and self-realization. Exercises To practice visualizing with your mind's eye, sit down and close your eyes. Inhale slowly and deeply, and as you exhale just as slowly, begin to relax your entire body. As you allow your breathing to find its own rhythm, create and sense a letting go feeling in your body from head to toe. With your eyes still closed, imagine a small movie screen floating in front of your forehead. Imagine projected on that screen the image of a stop sign. It's red with four white letters, S-T-O-P. What else do you notice about this stop sign? How many sides does it have? In your mind's eye, change the traffic sign to one that's yellow and says... Yield. What colors are the letters? What is the shape of the sign? Imagine walking around to the back side of the sign. What color is the back? 
And can you see how the sign is attached to the post? Now visualize the letters of the alphabet one at a time. Are they capital letters or lowercase? As you move through the alphabet, see each letter disappear in a different way. One vanishes in a puff of smoke. Another quickly melts, collapsing into a puddle. The next letter goes up in flames, and so on. Thank <music> you.